So while that's all going on, why don't you all turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 as we uh, continue our, our study through this particular gospel. It is our, our custom, and I think the right way to do things is to study uh, the Bible book by book rather than me skipping around and picking out my favorite topic and telling you about what I like to talk about. Instead, we go through the Bible, and uh, book by book and verse by verse, sometimes we end up in really difficult passages of text um, that uh, make us uncomfortable, but we just have to deal with them. Um, this, our, our, our text today is a challenging one. It's one that there's been a lot of discussion about, but before we get there, um, I, I want to introduce the message with... Um, with the theme of the Reformation, because you do understand that on October 31st, we will celebrate the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. And for those of us in uh, the Protestant Church, we are, of, we are so grateful over the idea that um, to restore the idea, not to make it new, because it was always in the Bible, the idea of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the merits of Christ alone. That church councils and the magisterium and works do not make us believers. Christ makes us Christians. And we are saved not because we've done anything good, but because Christ has loved us and because of what Christ has done. And so periodically through the month, we'll be hearing stories of... Uh, uh, an account of some of the things that went on and, and what brought about this incredible truth. And, and I want to begin rather late, actually, in the Reformation, um, at least this morning, because I think it's appropriate to our, to our text. And it, it involves a man by the name of Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury under King Henry VIII, um, and also under... Uh, Edward VI in England. And, and everything was fine and dandy until um, Queen Mary came, Bloody Mary, came to the throne. And then um, he was condemned for, to death by treason and heresy. Um, he actually watched a couple of his colleagues and friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, um, be burned at the stake in Oxford for their, um, for their crimes of believing in Salvation by grace through faith in Christ, by believing in the authority of God's word. And being burned at the stake was an awful, awful way to be put to death. And the fear of this painful death caused Cranmer to recount his Protestant views and sign a paper that he agreed with the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, of papal authority, and of uh, indulgences and those types of things. And even though he recanted, he was still condemned to death. And on the eve of his execution, he was brought before the church where he was expected to acknowledge publicly his shift towards Rome. And he shocked his enemies when he suddenly renounced his recantation. In other words, he recanted his recantation and declared, this is what he said, he declared the Pope the Antichrist, 
rejected transubstantiation, and then with a light heart and a clear conscience, he allowed himself to be hurried to the stake amidst the outcries of his disappointed enemies. And as the flames curled around him, he held out his right hand, the hand that recanted his faith, the hand that recanted faith in Jesus Christ. He held that out. Let this be burned. All right. This is what he said. This unworthy right hand, let it go first. So while he held out his right hand to the flames, he held out his left hand toward heaven and he perished in the flames. So as we come to Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 8, I believe that we will see um, some relevance to this account that I just um, recall to you. Before we get there, I just want to make sure that we understand where we're at in this text, and I want to put the pieces together because our text today, I, it's really, it's very closely connected to what we read and studied last week, so if you're not sure of that, you can go and listen to that online, and that is um, at sermon, uh, sermon.net slash C-O-R-P, and you can listen to last week's sermon, but it was just too much text to, to handle in one setting, so we kind of had to break it up. So I want you to understand how this, this passage of text, chapter 12, 1 through 12, flows together. First of all, Jesus calls his, his disciples to avoid hypocrisy, and you'll recall there were two environments where hypocrisy tends to blossom, and that's under popularity and in persecution. So one can easily... Um, deny the faith to remain popular. And we saw that last week, but also under fear of persecution. So Jesus called his disciples to avoid hypocrisy. Then he called them to watch how you live because everything will be revealed. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, um, both good and bad, all will re be revealed, and that we should fear God and not men. Man's rule is very temporal, but God's rule is eternal, but, and then in all of this, know that God cares for you. And now what we're going to pick up today is, this, is the theme of Jesus admonishing or encouraging his disciples to be consistent and confess Jesus. Don't be hypo hypocritical. Don't back away from your faith when uh, you need to do so to be popular or for fear of persecution. Know that God is with you. Be consistent and confess that Jesus is Lord. That's kind of the, the flow of our text. And so let's go ahead and read uh, chapters, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, verses 8 through 12, and then I'll make a few comments on it, and, and then we'll be done. But you know there's quite a bit of time between those few comments and us being done. So, yeah. So, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is God's inspired and inerrant and completely trustworthy word of God. 
So our text begins, I tell you, um, with this idea, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. There's this kind of this courtroom scene. Imagine being called, being summoned by God into a heavenly courtroom where every secret of your heart is revealed before a heavenly court. That might make you nervous. That would make me nervous. Then imagine, after every secret of your heart, the things that I don't know, you don't, that you've hidden well, as well as those things you haven't. The things that even bring you great shame. There they are revealed. And out of the witnesses steps Jesus Christ, your Lord. He says, she's with me. He's with me. Come, welcome into your rest. None of those things matter. All of those things have been forgiven. Those are of of no account. You're with me, and the heavenly court rejoices in the fact that you've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. This is a heavenly courtroom scene. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge. Imagine that. Jesus Christ, the righteous, stepping forward and saying, yeah, you're mine. This one belongs to me. All of those things bear no weight. Spreads his hand, shows the wounds, purchased, paid in full, the certificate of debt canceled out. Tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And I believe this is a very interesting statement where Jesus refers to himself. He likes to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And there are many, many, um, there's a lot of great depth to this term, Son of Man, and it is one that is worth consideration. But let me just suggest to you how Luke has presented us, has presented to us, his readers, Uh, this Son of Man picture in chapter 5, verse 24. The Son of Man is the one who forgives sins. In chapter 7, verse 34, we see that it is the Son of Man who is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 9, 22, the Son of Man is the suffering servant who bears our grief. And here we see the Son of Man as the judge of the living and the dead. Do you see the picture that Luke is painting for us, or Jesus is, is, is painting for us, that Luke is recording? We see that the Son of Man is the one who forgives sins. He is the friend of sinners. He is the one who suffers on, the behalf, on behalf of those who have rebelled against God, but he is also the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one who will step out of that witness box and say, he's with me, or he's not with me, she's with me, she's not with me. He is the judge of the living and the dead. Consider Acts chapter 10, verses 42 
I'm 43. Oh boy, that didn't turn out very good. But it says, And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him all the prophets bear witness and everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Note this. And He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to do what? To be judge of the living and the dead. And to him, all the prophets bear witness. And everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I have to ask, have you believed in him for the forgiveness of sins? I think that's an imperative question beyond our text, beyond everything that I'm going to say today. That needs to be put out there. Let's look at another passage of text in Acts chapter 7. Um, uh, A great passage of text. I think we see um, in Stephen's martyrdom when Stephen is being killed for his faith for his proclamation that Jesus Christ is the one to whom all the prophets pointed and that all who believe in him will receive forgiveness of sins that didn't go over too well amongst the religious leaders. And as he was perishing, as he was being stoned to death, Jesus had a vision of heaven and this is what he says, this is what he saw. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and what? And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And here the Son of Man is standing. Notice other passages of the text have Jesus Christ seated at the right hand. For this our Lord stands up to welcome his faithful servant, Stephen. This is the courtroom scene. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Well, we like the first part of that, of that statement. The second part, the denial part, is a little more difficult for us and our question or certainly the question that arises is this idea of denial what is it is it a single event or is it more a manner of life we do know it's not you passing something on on social media saying here's a picture of Jesus um, are, do, will you be bold enough to share this if you aren't you're denying me that's not what Jesus is talking about he didn't know about Facebook at the time God the Father did let me just clarify that Is this a single incident or is this a pattern of life? Is this a denial of... I think one one way that this has been put and I think is is helpful, it's helpful to me, hopefully it will be to you, um, and that is putting this as, is this a denial of nerve versus a denial of the heart? Because we ask the question, well, gosh, I've denied Jesus before. I've had opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and haven't. I've been fearful. Does that mean that he's going to deny me when I stand before him? Or is this a singular event? Or is this more of a heart attitude? And I think one of our best examples, or perhaps we can uh, gain some clarity on this question by looking at Peter and Judas. Because both of them denied Christ. Peter denied Christ three times, as a matter of fact. He exhibited a denial of nerve, which he later reversed by bold proclamation. Peter says, I don't know him, I don't know him, and I don't know him. And it says he swore. And in the Bible, when somebody's swearing, it doesn't mean they're cursing, necessarily. 
it means they're, they're swearing before God. I swear before God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things, I don't know that man. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter confessed his sins, called upon the name of the Lord, became the head of the church, the, the primary, the leader of the church, and made bold proclamation on the day of Pentecost and that on other sermons. Peter was a man of great boldness of proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the name by which all, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Jesus Christ. This is Peter. Peter the denier. Peter, the forgiven. Peter, the bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the other side, we have Judas, who also denied Christ and did so by betraying him. And Judas ended up killing himself. I think Judas is the better illustration of this particular text. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before the angels in heaven. I think that Judas is the better picture of what's going on here, not Peter. So, in other words, have you ever denied Jesus Christ? Maybe you have. Maybe you had an opportunity to speak up and you hid in in fear, in shame, in some sort of um, moment of weakness. Maybe you'll even do it again sometime in the future. I think we're going to see in just a little bit, even that is forgiven, can be forgiven. But the one who lives a life of denial, Judas is known as the son of perdition. He's the one who was never of us. He's the one I... He's the type of person I think John speaks about in his epistles. They were among us, but they went out from us because they were never of us. They existed in our midst. They worshipped with us. They sang the songs. They said the amen, but they left. Judas is the one who saw miracles, did miracles. Heard the word of God from God himself but he was never one of us never he's the that's the person whom God says depart from me I never knew you so I think this has more to do than with a denial has more to do with a denial of heart the one whose life is one of denial. And just for you grammar geeks out there, this is a participle. And so it is the denying one. I think the one who lives a life of denial. I do want you to notice something here. There is only two options presented to us. There is confessing Christ and denying Christ. There is not a middle option for us. And then we move along into this very, very uh, challenging passage of text. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what do we do with that? The, the, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, what do we do with that? Have I committed it? I get people who say, I'm afraid I've not committed that sin. I'm lost forever. What does it mean? Well, it's one that's uh, discussed quite a bit. Let me uh, 
try to unpack some things for you. First of all, let's, let's identify that Jesus distinguishes between speaking dishonorably about the Son and speaking dishonorably about the Holy Spirit. So you can speak dishonorably about the Son and that will be forgiven, but there's something about this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is not forgivable. So I guess that sounds kind of like a big deal. We should probably figure out what it is or at least get a clue. Because the one is forgivable, the second is not. And like I said, there are many, many views out there, and I'm not going to give them to you all. You can do your own research and figure them out if that interests you. Let me give you what is certainly the, the, the primary view amongst kind of evangelical, Christian, Protestant-type views. The primary view would be the ascribing of the work of Jesus to Satan. That is, the ascribing of the work of Jesus to Satan. And the reason that we get that view is because Matthew and Mark put this statement right after Jesus cast out a demon. And the religious leaders say he does that work. He has the power to cast out demons because he is demon-possessed. He does so by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So Jesus, first of all, is subordinate to the prince of demons. And he operates under the authority of the prince of demons. And that he, his power comes from Satan. So when you consider Matthew and, and, and Mark's account of this, um, that's, this is then when Jesus gives that, that, that lesson. Every sin will be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And so people then would say, well, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is ascribing an obvious work of Christ, an obvious work of God to Satan. Are you with me so far? Okay. So I, there, there's some very strong reasons why that is a, that's a good view. Um, but I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with it. I, I'm not saying it's completely off. I just, something doesn't sit right there. And w- one of the things that doesn't sit right for me is that it only fits Matthew and Mark, but it doesn't fit Luke's account. So, because Luke doesn't, doesn't have that, that miracle, that, um, that casting out of the demon in the immediate context. It's much more remote. And so it doesn't fit real well in Luke. It fits very well in Matthew and Mark. The other thing is it's, very, it's a very narrow thing. I mean, does this ever... Does that actually happen? Is saying that the, the work of a... If a miracle happens and saying, oh, well, that person is working by, by Satan, it seems very narrow. So I'm a little uncomfortable with it. Let me give you a, a position I'm a little more comfortable with that I think um, accounts... For the text, um, all of the text, the Matthew account, the Mark account, the Luke account, I think it also accounts for some of the grammar that is used, and I also think it fits into the overall picture of, of Scripture. So, and it's nothing groundbreaking, it's just another view. So this isn't like some great thing that you've never heard before, and I discovered some, some new answer to this baffling passage of text that is yet undiscovered. Um, So this is nothing new, but I think it fits the text best. And that is that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a persistent 
willful rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. It is a persistent, willful rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. Because I think for us to best understand this, we need to understand what is the work of the Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the first, well, the Holy Spirit does a lot of things. But let me give a quick summary, at least in the area of the work of the Holy Spirit, in the area of bringing a person to salvation and maturing them in Christ. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. We see this in John chapter 16, 4. He, the Spirit of truth, glorifies Jesus Christ. That is, he magnifies him. He he shines a light upon Jesus Christ. But I have said these these things to you that when... Oops. Well, I lost my my text. Ah, here it is. It's John 6.14, not 6.4. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So first of all, the Spirit of God glorifies or illuminates or makes known the person of Jesus Christ. The other thing we see that the Spirit of God do is that he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He convicts the the world of sin. That is, um, he shows people that or he convicts us that, that we've fallen short of the glory of God, that we have sinned. Perhaps the primary um, sin of this world is unbelief. We do not believe what God has said. And God, in his grace, uses the means of preaching and proclamation to put the message out there, but conviction of sin is, is a job of the Holy Spirit. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. And nobody will be convicted of sin unless it is the Spirit of God who moves upon a person's heart. God does use the means and what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. But understand this, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit also convicts of righteousness. That is, on the one hand, there is sin. Man who has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. On the other side is righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that Jesus is the objective, right standard of God. And that when I compare my sin against Jesus' righteous standard, I fall terribly short. The Holy Spirit convicts a person that Jesus alone meets God's objective standard of righteousness and that we instead are bent and crooked. Convicts the world of sin and righteousness and then convicts the world also of judgment. Convicts a person that I am sin, bent, and crooked. Jesus is right and straight and true. I do not meet that standard and there is a certain judgment that awaits the one who is not, who is in that position. The Holy Spirit convicts a person that they have sinned, that they are unrighteous and as a result will face God's just judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Convicts the world of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We see in John chapter 3, 
verses 6 and 7, that it is the Holy Spirit who regenerates. That's the idea of being born again. Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. And I won't get into all of that, but the idea is you must be made a new creation. You must be um, made anew by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit that gives life. We also see it as the Spirit that sanctifies. And that's just a fancy word of saying that He empowers you to live the life that He saved you to live. He regenerates you, causes you to be born again, and then empowers you to live the life that He caused you to be born again to live. The other thing the Holy Spirit does, and we see this in 1 Corinthians 2, is the Holy Spirit illumines God's Word. That is, He makes it so that we actually receive it and understand it. There's a lot of folks out there who know the Bible really, really well. Know the Bible better than I do. Know the Bible probably better than all of us in here combined. But they don't believe a word of it. It's an object of study. It's a fascinating ancient manuscript. It gives us historical perspective of how people lived in the ancient Near East in the um, in time past. But it is not the Word of God. See, they've read it. They have knowledge of it, but it has not been illumined to them. It has not come to life. It is the Holy Spirit that makes that come to life. So I hear testimony after testimony. I guarantee there are most of you, many of you who are believers today would say, you know what, I read a passage of text and it meant nothing to me. And then after I became born again, after Christ saved me, I read that and it just floored me. I'm sorry, you're going to read the book of Romans as an unbeliever completely different than you're going to read the book of Romans as a believer. That's just the bottom line. The book of Romans to an unbeliever is an interesting letter. To the believer, it will crush you. It will cause you to stand up and rejoice and sing praises and dance around your room and nobody will be lurking. Or dance around your room when everybody's looking and you won't care. Because of the magnificent truth, that's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So, to reject that witness to persistently and willfully reject the Spirit, glorifying Christ, convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, resisting and willfully rejecting His regenerating work or His sanctifying work and and the illumination that would, would come through the work of the Spirit. To reject that leaves you no remedy. You have no remedy. What are you going to do? What can you offer God? All you can do is say, ah, let me work a little bit harder. To which God says, that's rubbish. I save you through my Son. And the Holy Spirit is the convicting agent to bring you to my Son. Reject the convicting agent and you reject the Son who's going to save you. Instead, you're going to rely on your works and your efforts. And those will not merit salvation. No matter how high you pile them. And so, to reject the witness of God's Spirit is to reject the means by which God saves a person. And a persistent rejection of God's witness will leave us with no remedy. So, I think that's a fair view. And 
I think it fits Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, all three um, of those Gospels who record this event. Um, it would fit all of them. It also fits grammatically. Um, in chapter 12, um, but the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, again, we have this idea of, uh, of an ongoing idea, the, the one who is characterized by blaspheme. It also fits the larger context of Scripture. So most likely, I would say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a single event. You probably have not committed it yet. But it is a persistent way of life. If you keep persistently rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit, um, you're walking on a very perilous path. So people come into my office or or wherever I happen to meet them and say, I think I've committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and God will never forgive me and I'm really concerned about that. And usually I will say, if you're really concerned about that, you probably have not committed it because the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So now what are you going to do? I've, I've had more people though walk out of that meeting not, not responding to that conviction. Anyways, that's another story. So, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels, but the one who denies me before men will be not denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Um, so if you've spoken a word against Christ, you can be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And Jesus then brings this, um, uh, this section to a close. And when... They bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. Do not be anxious about how you wish to defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is a great promise. Jesus now gives us another courtroom scene. This is just an earthly courtroom scene where the persecuted believer is brought before the magistrates to give an account of their testimony about Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, don't worry about making a defense. You know, the Holy Spirit is called the advocate, which is uh, sometimes translated as the lawyer. Jesus is saying, you got a really good lawyer. Don't worry, I have hired the best counsel in the universe. So when you're dragged before the, the tribunals to give an account for me, you've, you've got great representation. The Spirit's provision will be provided. And a couple things. I want you to note the certainty here. Note that when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, notice that it is the when, not the if or the perhaps. It is the when. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. You will be in court. You will get subpoenaed and you will be in court. Just don't worry about your, about your defense. I got you on that one. And Christians of all times have been dragged before tribunals, perhaps given the season that the, the, the month we're in. Perhaps one of the most famous tribunals was when Martin Luther was called to recount, recant his writings. Recount his idea of justification by faith alone. 
And I want you to notice that word alone. It's not justification by faith. It is justification by faith alone. And they wanted him to, to recant. And we'll let you go back to living your cushy life. And you probably know the very famous, famous statement that Luther, I think, led by the Holy Spirit, uh, assuming he actually said these things. Some historians would say he didn't. But he said, but unless I can be convinced by Scripture and by reason, I will not recant. Here I stand. Lord, have mercy. That was a Holy Spirit defense. But he's not the only one. Here we live in 20th century and 21st century America. But just think, even back in the 50s, I'm just using that as, a, as an example, middle of the century, if you were a church member in a nice affluent church, and you were to stand up against the unrighteous Jim Crow laws, you would be pulled before the elders of your church, quite likely, to give an account for your horrible views. Would you do that? Because I'm going to believe that there is no Jew and no Greek, and there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no Scythian, there is no barbarian, that all are one in Christ. How about today? Like in, throughout history, there's been corruption of God's Word. People corrupting it. Teaching horrible, horrible things. Teaching that God didn't say what God actually said. What was the, one of the first lines that Satan said to Eve? Hath God said? We still have that today. Hath God said? And we have people now twisting God's word to say what he never said. That we can live a life of unabandoned rebellion before God and God just doesn't care. And to speak up against it, you may not be guilty before a court of law, but you will be guilty in the court of public opinion. You will be deemed to be on the wrong side of history. And perhaps fired from your job. When you're dragged before the court, will you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? <clears throat> you should note this. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, what you ought to say. What a great word of comfort. The word of comfort is that God does not abandon his people when they need him the most. When we are terrified and in difficulty and one against a thousand in that moment, that's not when God abandons you. The Holy Spirit will give you the words that you need to say and he will give you the strength to say it. And perhaps like Thomas Cranmer, who denied Christ in a moment of denial of nerve, was able, in the face of the fire, say, wait a second, wait a second. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I put no trust in the counsels of men, even though it will cost my life. Dr. Cranmer was a man who denied Jesus Christ. Dr. Cranmer was a man who turned his life around in a brief moment and confessed Jesus Christ. And in that very hour, the Holy Spirit was with him and gave him strength to not only face his enemies, but endure the flames that were about to come upon him. So, gosh, I hate to to conclude on such a, I don't know, bleak point. So I'll say this. Jesus, in this text, is calling us to confess Him, to believe Him, to trust Him, to rely upon Him, that He is not abandoning us. And that the Father is much more powerful. Earlier He said, don't fear man who can kill the body, but fear God, basically, who can, after the body's dead, faces eternal judgment. Fear God and confess that Jesus Christ, His Son, is Lord, and, I w- and Jesus will, before all of heaven, say, you belong to me, you're mine. And no man can take that back. And no man can do anything to you at that point. I also want you to know, if we falter, there is forgiveness. Look at Peter. Peter failed. But look at him. Peter was forgiven. If you've fallen, you haven't done as you ought to have done, the mercy and the grace of God is great. Do you want to tell you that persistent rejection of the Holy Spirit is fatal? And if the Holy Spirit right now is convicting you um, of sin and righteousness and judgment, my advice to you is respond. Um, Myself, the elders, pretty much anybody in this church would love to talk to you about what it means to walk and follow after Christ. I know we have a family meeting afterwards, but that will wait. And ultimately, we need to understand this, that God never leaves us or forsakes us. When the crowd loves us, Christ is with us. When the crowd turns against us, Christ is with us. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And when you die and breathe your last breath, he still hasn't left you or forsaken you. Because the next moment you, you will open your eyes and see your gracious Lord who has redeemed you and purchased you, never leaving you, never forsaking you, even making sure that the gates of heaven are open to you when it's that time. So let's stand and let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and uh, just spend a a few moments of quiet reflection uh, thinking about these passages of text, Lord God. I pray that you would imprint them on our hearts and convict us by your Spirit. So um, guide us now as we spend just a few moments in quiet reflection of the word that you have spoken to us today. Now, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that 
your grace is greater than our sin. And that your love for us is greater than our rebellion against you. So we pray, Father, that you would have mercy upon us. We thank you that you've loved us. I pray, Father, that we would serve you faithfully and without hypocrisy and to live our lives in accordance with your purposes and principles. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.